Brooke and I have had the, the wonderful opportunity, uh, faith-building opportunity to teach two teenage drivers uh, so far. I know some of you have been through that phase. We could potentially start training our third driver uh, a year from now, which is crazy. Um, a year from yesterday, actually. Happy birthday, Katie. I know she loves it when I single her out. Uh, <laughs> one, of the, one of the many challenges of teaching uh, someone to drive is helping them to, to kind of know to do those things that we sort of do unconsciously after you've driven for a while. And a big part of that is to check your mirrors, you know, side mirrors, rear view mirror. If you've been driving for years and you don't even know you have mirrors, uh, that's scary, but no, but we, we, we do that and we, we just, we, we don't even realize how often and in and, and, and what situations we're doing it and, and we adjust to kind of the road conditions and, and know we need to check more frequently or we need to, to check this mirror or that mirror we're passing and, and those kinds of things. So, so how, how often you check, how, how long you, you look at the mirror and how, uh, at what times it's necessary and, and as you're, depending on your speed, just kind of how perspective changes in terms of uh, distance of other drivers, so all of those things. It's difficult to teach that. Most of it just comes from, from driving, but somehow you've got to help, help them create those habits of, of looking in the mirror. As they're moving forward, they need to regularly look back, look behind them, uh, not get stuck staring backwards. That's quite dangerous, but to, to be consistently uh, looking backwards. Well, Scripture often tells us to look back as we move ahead, uh, to check our mirrors. The biblical word for that is remember. We're to remember. That's, uh, that's repeated throughout the scriptures. In, 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 in Old Testament, in, in the life of the nation of Israel, God's chosen nation, His people, the, the whole rhythm of life for Israel was, was built upon regularly remembering God's gracious, uh, God's gracious promises, His deliverances, His, His dealings with them as a people. This is this was just the this is how life functioned. Their 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 daily activities that God prescribed the the weekly uh, the weekly calendar and schedule for His people Israel the the annual feasts and festivals all of those things serve to continually remind them of who God is and what God had done and of his, his dealings with them. They were to be continually remembering, continually checking their mirrors, and it was to just become just a normal part of life for them while they were living in the present, so not staring, not looking, staring at the past, but living in the present with this trusting obedience in God and still hoping and, and, and looking down the road, anticipating the future and full and final deliverance that God has promised. This was just, this was to be normal for them. And it's evidenced in the Psalms like this. It, it, for us as Christians, as a church, it's the, it's the same thing and in some sense even in, in an even greater way. This is worked out in the New Testament. The warp and the woof of the, of the Christian life is, is remembering. It's remembering the gracious, saving work of God uh, in Jesus Christ. What He's done for us in Christ. It's living, and then it's living now in light of that by faith. And it's still for us anticipating His return when all will be fulfilled. And so remembering is one of the main reasons that we gather together each week in this assembly on the Lord's Day. 
This is why he's, he's called us to do this on the first day of the week. Why the first day of the week? Because this is the day Christ rose from the dead. Even the day of the week is significant for our remembering. We read the scriptures. We sing these truths to one another. We, we preach the word and hear the word preached. We baptize. We, we take communion. All of these things so that we will remember. We're constantly checking our mirrors. We're, all of those New Testament exhortations to us, all of those commands, and there are a lot of them in the New Testament, they're all rooted, as you look through those New Testament letters, they're, all of them are rooted in the work that Christ has already accomplished for us. And so in our present living, in our present obedience, we, we are, we are, it's all rooted as we look back in what Christ has already accomplished for us. And so Psalm 105, it's one of many psalms that directs us, again, to look back at how God has worked. And as it does that, it calls for a response in light of God's perfect track record of faithfulness to his people. And so at its core, it's a psalm of, of thanksgiving. It's a psalm of thanksgiving for God, for his sovereign grace in the past. And so, brothers and sisters, we can all attest to this reality in our own lives that up our lives up to this point the easy stuff the hard stuff the good the bad the pleasant the miserable all of it has been part of this story of God's sovereign grace his patience his care his kindness his faithfulness to us all of it God is at work. And so how, how then will we live in light of this perfect track record of God's faithfulness to us? That's the question I want us to kind of be grappling with today. So Psalm 105, it begins and ends with this call to praise. And so verse, verse 1, oh, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name. Verse 45, praise the Lord. And so in between those, those bookends, you have all of these reasons to praise the Lord. All of these reasons to, to sing to the Lord, to give thanks to the Lord and call upon his name. And so the, the heart of the psalm, the crux of it all is verse 8. It's the fact that God remembers his covenant forever. God remembers. Remembering is a big, a big theme in this song. And the, and, the, and the core of it all is that God has remembered his covenant. From verses four, 9 to 45 then, the psalmist is going to expound upon that, that profound truth. And, and he's going to recount God's faithfulness, particularly to Israel, his miracles, his protection, his care, his deliverance of, of his people throughout those 500 years of history that the psalmist is, is drawing upon here. And, and, then, and then to us, the, the way the remembering shows up is verse 5. There's this hinge, and he says, therefore, remember the wondrous works that he has done. So we're remembering and we're called to remember. And again, this is a big word. We're to remember everything that God has done because what? God remembers his covenant promises. We'll come back at the end and connect those two again together. But I want to see that development in the psalm. I want us to look at that together. So in Psalm 105, we're looking back at this big chunk of Israel's history. And, and, and when I say Israel's history, it's not that we're removed from this. This is our story. We're connected to this story. We're, this is, there's one story, one, one uh, story that God is, is writing and developing. And so we're, we're, we're part of this. This is, this is ours, not because we're Jews, but because this, this redemptive history is our redemptive history. So 500 years of Israel's history, we're going to see. And so we're going to jump back into Genesis chapter 12 next Sunday 
and, and, and we'll cover the, the, the remainder of the book of Genesis in, in, in a re- relatively short period of time. But we're going to be looking at this same history in a, in a little more detail and see how all of this fits together, this story that God is writing. But the, the bulk of Psalm 105, it's tracing God's hand, recounting the history of the nation of Israel from Abraham all the way through their inheritance of the land of Canaan. And so... His choosing Israel as his people, his protecting them when they were weak and vulnerable, his delivering them through the miraculous events of the Exodus, his preserving them in the wilderness, his bringing them into the promised land. That's what what Pastor Dow read through a moment ago, and I hope you could see that history unfold. And some of you are very familiar with it. Some of you, maybe this is a little newer. That's okay. Uh, we'll, We'll explain this, but it's just... What you see through this is grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. And God has done it all. Great is God's faithfulness. That's what we were singing just a moment ago. And this is what this proclaims to us. So, but, but bracketing that large section that's recounting God's faithfulness to Israel are these exhortations. He's telling the reader. He's telling the congregation how to respond. And so verses 1 to 7, you, as you notice this, they're, it's fi- they're filled with commands. It's give thanks, make known, sing praises, speak, glory, seek three times, remember. And so the series of exhortations to, to praise the Lord, to make Him known among the peoples. And then the last verse of, of the psalm, it gives us the reason for God's sovereign deliverance. And preservation of his people, so that they might keep his statutes and observe his laws. Praise the Lord. And so because so much space is devoted to reflecting on, on God's dealings with, with, uh, in history with his people Israel, Psalms 105 and 106 are what, are what we call historical psalms. Historical psalms. And so Psalm 106, we, we won't... We won't look at this. We're not going to continue on through this. But it, it has an equally long section if you just look across the page. And, and you can see it's, it's similar in length. And, it, and it's recounting much of the same history. The, the difference, though, is in Psalm, 10, Psalm 106, the emphasis is on Israel's unfaithfulness. And, and so it's, there's this confession that's woven through Psalm 106. In Psalm 105, the emphasis is on God's faithfulness. And, and, but both, they're tied together with this common refrain to praise the Lord. We're called to praise the Lord. And this is how Israel uses this, this psalm throughout their history. Let me, the, the, the place that we know uh, most clearly where this psalm was sung by another group of people, it, the, the first half of this psalm was used to, in, in celebration. When, remember when the Ark of the Covenant was, was away from God's people? It's brought back into the tabernacle during David's day. And, and so David assigns Asaph, one of his relatives, and, and these other people to, to, to have this, this uh, job of giving thanks to the Lord and leading the nation, leading God's people and, and praising the Lord and giving thanks that the Ark of the Covenant has been returned to his people. And so what do they turn to as they sing this song together as, as a congregation? They, they turn to this psalm. The, they use this psalm to guide their celebration of, of God's grace and of thanksgiving. And so this is the song that David, remember he's, he, 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 is, he is so stirred in the heart that he begins leaping and dancing before the Lord. It's this song that does that. So if some of you want to break forth and leaping and dancing, I'm just going to leave that to you. Um, 
so, so we don't know who wrote the psalm. We don't know the exact circumstances in which this psalm was, wrote, was written. We're not given a, an inscription like many of the other psalms. But we don't really need to know the exact circumstances or the author to know and to benefit from its message. And that's what I want you to see today. So as we work through this psalm, maybe as we, as we sing this, don't just see this as a cold recitation of, of historical facts. Just kind of picture that scene of the ark coming back and, and the people dancing before the Lord and singing praise and giving thanks to the Lord for his, his sovereign grace. And that's, that's how I want us to see this psalm in that light. So first thing, just two, two kind of broad statements, and, and I don't have slides for you, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, but just you can get that down in your own words. First thing I want to say is this, and this is connecting it to us, and then we'll go back into the text. But first thing, never forget, never forget, there's remember, never forget that God in his sovereign grace has chosen you and has his hand upon you. Never forget that God, in his sovereign grace, has chosen you and has his hand upon you, even through your difficulties. Even through your difficulties. So one of the things that really stands out, and if, 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 I, if you followed along, and if, if you could just kind of get a sense of this, this, this thread that runs throughout the psalm, the, 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 the psalmist attributes everything in Israel's history to God. It's his sovereign working. You can see this very clearly if you, if you just had a highlighter. You could go through and highlight all of those pronouns, those third-person pronouns. He, 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 he. It's throughout this psalm. Verse 8, he remembered his covenant, the word which he commanded. He confirmed it, verse 10. He permitted no man to oppress them, verse 14. He reproved kings for their sakes. He called for a famine, verse 16. He sent a man before them, verse 17. He made Joseph lord of Pharaoh's house, verse 21. He caused his people to be very fruitful, verse 24. He turned, the hearts of, uh, 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 he turned their hearts to hate his people, verse 25. He sent Moses. He sent plagues and darkness. He brought them out. He spread a cloud for a covering. He opened the rock. He remembered his holy word. He brought forth his people with joy. He gave them the lands of the nations. You can't miss the point. This is God doing. It's not a joint effort, but this is God and Him working alone. This is His sovereign power being demonstrated, His sovereign grace being demonstrated, and all that He did. And so the psalmist begins in verses 8 through 11 with this covenant promise that God made to Abraham. We're going to look at this very next week, next Sunday, Lord willing, Genesis 12. And this was repeated to his sons, to Isaac, to, to Jacob. And so this is a promise to give them the land of Canaan, this promised land, and, and to make their descendants into this great nation that's going to bless all of the peoples of the earth. And so, but this is what you see. There was nothing, nothing that Abraham did to merit God's choosing of him out of all of the other pagans living in the land of Ur. There was nothing in Abraham. He, God didn't find this spark of faith in Abraham that, that God could exploit. God didn't look at Abraham out of all of those other pagans in the land and say, you know, there's, there's a guy who would really be an asset to me because of something within Abraham. No, that's not it at all. No, God sovereignly chose Abraham solely because of his sovereign grace. 
That's it. That's the emphasis in the psalm. That's the emphasis in Genesis 12. God revealed himself and his purpose to Abraham. God, God protected him and has protected his descendants when they were very few, when they were weak, when they were vulnerable in the midst of the hostile Canaanites. Verses 12 through 15. And Derek Kidner, great commentator on the book of Psalms, and, but he says, nothing could make it clearer that it was God, not man, who saw the whole matter through. And that's, that's, what I, that's what this psalm is showing to us. It's all God. We see it in, in each of these episodes that the, the psalm is looking back to. We see it very clear in verses 14 and 15. And, 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 and the story behind it, the story behind it is in Genesis chapter 20. Uh, you remember this account. This is where Abraham lies to uh, that pagan king Abimelech. And, and he says that Sarah, who's Abraham's wife, he says that she's his, actually his sister, and so God appears to this pagan king in a dream, and he says, these are the words, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. And so Abimelech protests to the Lord and says, Hey, we, hadn't, we haven't had sexual relations. In fact, Abraham lied to me, so how could I have known? And so God tells Abimelech, Here, the only reason you did not sin is because I kept you from it. God, this is God's doing. And he also tells, that, tells him that Abraham's a prophet and that Abraham is actually praying for him so that if, if he gives Sarah back, that he will, he will live. But, but this is the emphasis in that story. And this is the emphasis in the psalm. It's, it's, it's on God's sovereign purpose to preserve Abraham and his offspring, to remember his covenant. It's not upon Abraham's obedience, definitely not. God later, we see this as, as we work through the psalm, God, God protected Jacob. He protected him from his much stronger brother Esau. And, and, and he could have, Esau could have murdered Jacob, should have murdered Jacob probably for stealing his birthright. But God, God protected him. That's the only explanation for Jacob surviving. All of this protection of what, what the psalmist calls the anointed ones, verse 15, the, the patriarchs, the prophets, it wasn't, it wasn't because they, again, were morally superior as a people. It wasn't because of political or military power like nobody could mess with them. That wasn't it at all. It wasn't because they were such this, this faithful, religious, obedient group. No, it's not it. It's solely because God made a covenant. It's because of God's choice of them. And they're, they're as completely undeserving as they were. God had chosen them. The psalm continues with the story of Joseph in verses 16 to 22. We're familiar with this story. God calls for a famine, and listen, that's all it takes for God to say famine, and there's famine. And just, just understand that. I mean, think, I think our own nation, we should take heed of, heed of that thought. As proud as we are, as proud as the nations of this world are, God could say to the United States, famine, and, and all of those productive farms look like the Sahara Desert. He can do it. He has done it. And so, so, so God calls for this famine, but because God has a purpose for Abraham's offspring, he, verse 17, sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. So Joseph ends up in Egypt. You know the story because his jealous brother sold him into slavery. But what does the psalmist attribute to this to? God sent him. 
God sent him to Egypt. And Joseph himself affirmed this, that, 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 that God sent him to Egypt to preserve their lives. Genesis 45, 5, we see that. They, they meant it for evil. God meant it for good. And so, but before God elevated Joseph in Egypt, he tested him through this time in prison. We'll come back to that. But then, then in this perfect time, God elevated Joseph, who was then able to provide food for his extended family through those years of famine, verse 20 and 22, and so through Joseph, Jacob, and all his descendants, they sojourn to Egypt. They come to Egypt and find help there, find food there, and God caused them to be very fruitful there and to multiply as a people there in Egypt. This is all God's doing. But then, then look at the turn of verse 25. While all these Israelites are in Egypt and they're, they're being cared for and they're, they're being uh, protected and they're, being, they're growing as a people. What, what happens? The text says that God turned the hearts of the Egyptians to hate them. God did this. That doesn't mean that God is the author of evil and it's like God, God made them just where they were. They loved him and all of a sudden they hate him. No, God takes the evil that already exists in the hearts of people and he uses it for his own holy purposes. And so this was supremely demonstrated. I know we go to the New Testament, we see the, I think one of the clearest demonstrations of this uh, God using and, and, and turning the evil of man for his purposes in Acts 2, verse 23, where, where God used, the, the, used evil men to accomplish his sovereign purpose of salvation through the crucifixion of his own son. And so that's the supreme demonstration. But this is, we see this happening throughout Scripture, throughout history. Next, the psalmist tells the story of Moses and Aaron, his chosen servants, how God sent them to, is, to bring Israel out of slavery, and he used those plagues that God sent. God did this, he did this, he did this, he did this. Each of those miraculous plagues was, was sent by God himself to accomplish his, his purpose. And then he goes on in verses 37 to 41 to recount the Exodus. Now, he recounts the Exodus, but he omits the part that we like to make movies about, the crossing of the Red Sea. Like, he doesn't even mention that. Uh, but his focus, as, as he's recounting it in this psalm, it's on God's protection, God's care, his provision for the nation in the wilderness, giving them the cloud and the fire and food and water. God is, God is providing for his people. They're not providing for themselves. God is giving them everything that they need. That's the emphasis. And he ends, he ends by repeating that all of these miraculous events are happening and have happened. Why? Because God has remembered his covenant to Abraham to give them the land of Canaan to his descendants, verses 43 and 44. Now, that's a lot of history to cover, and, I, and we are just going at 40,000 feet here to look at it, and that's all the psalm is doing. But let me, let me just draw out a few lessons for us from this history and to kind of bring it into our context today and and, 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 and I think there's, a, there's obvious points of connection here for us. Uh, again, the point of rehearsing these 500 years of Israel's history, it's so that God's people would remember his gracious dealings with them and would then live in light of them. So the first, first thing that I think is, is so clear, and we've emphasized this already, is that salvation is of the Lord salvation is of the Lord from beginning to end it's God it's God Israel's existence the, the covenants the promises the deliverances 
All of it's God's doing. It's his, it's his work for us, brothers and sisters. We just bring it into to, to our situation. Uh, our salvation is no less miraculous. And it has God's fingerprints all over it. That's the only explanation, brothers and sisters, that you and I would know eternal life with Christ and be, and be forgiven of our sins and brought out of darkness into light. It's not because we were more adv- advantaged. It's not because we, there's something in us that's better than other people. It's, there's nothing that makes us separate from, from the, the, the vilest pagan in the world or the, the one who's so entrenched in a false religion. The only explanation is grace. It's God. Now that, that ought to just, it, it's, our hearts should soar with thankfulness because of that reality. Our, our hearts should be full of compassion for sinners because of that reality. And so, this is it. This is it. He chose you. Ephesians 1, He chose you. He called you to Himself. He brought gospel witness into your life. He caused you to be born again. He adopted you as His own. He has protected you. He will keep you eternally secure. All of those those statements in the New Testament that speak of salvation, it's the emphasis is what God has done. He has accomplished this. And that, again, should promote, evoke tremendous gratitudes in our, gratitude in our hearts and in our voices to God. It's amazing, amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. We were lost, but now we're found blind but now we see and the only explanation we say Lord salvation belongs to you salvation belongs to you second lesson I think that for us that comes out of this is, is that nothing nothing can thwart God's purpose in your life nothing can stay and stop his hand I mean Pharaoh was the, the mightiest king on the earth at the time he's no match for God when God says I'm going to take my people out of here He's helpless. He can do nothing to stop God. God didn't need an army. He didn't need, you know, this, this impressive show. For, he, he just spoke. And sunny Egypt became engulfed in darkness. He spoke again and rivers turned to blood. He spoke again and Pharaoh's bedroom is swarming with frogs. He spoke again and, and his skin is crawling with gnats and flies and all the things that give us heebie-jeebies and stuff. I mean, it's, it's just, God just speaks, and it's accomplished. He spoke again, and the land's destroyed by hail and locusts. He spoke again, and all the firstborn are struck down. God speaks, and it's accomplished. Nothing, listen, nothing is difficult for God, brothers and sisters. If, 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 there's, if there's some seemingly impossible situation in your life and, and you, you just feel trapped and you, feel, you just feel deliverance is just not going to come and, and there's just no way out. Listen, the, the, the challenge there is not because God is, is unable. That's not it. His timing, I don't know. His wisdom, we don't know the mind of God, but he is able. Nothing is difficult for God. We, and we have to remember that when we feel completely overwhelmed by circumstances that we're going through. Another lesson out of this psalm, this part of the psalm is just recounting the history, is God, God has a purpose for your life individually. He does, but it's always in the context of community. He has a purpose for your life individually, but it's always in the context of community. 
And we see these names. God called and used many individuals. He, he, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Aaron, and, and, and many others. But he called and he used them as a nation, as a, as a, as a collective corporate people. And, and so it is for us. God has saved you as an individual. We come in one by one. And we, but his design is to bring you into community with other believers, with the church. We're built together in a local church. God, God's purpose is not just to save individuals, but it is to form a holy nation, a people for his own possession, 1 Peter 2.9. And so the, I think we can attest to this reality, but the, the, the greatest good that God works in our lives most often comes from, from meaningful relationships within the church. It's from the body of Christ. And I think we could probably go around the room and attest to the, the ways in which we see that demonstrated in our own lives. I, I know I could, could go on and on. And just even speaking of this body and the way the Lord has used you, people in this church. Another lesson is that God is not bound to our timetable. He's not, he's not bound to our timetable. He's, he's patient. I, I remember, I think Eric was the one that uh, maybe it was a college professor or something. I remember you shared this, you used this phrase a long time ago, stuck with me. It's simple, but she said, God's not in a hurry. And, and I, it's a good way of, a fresh way of saying God's patient. He's not in a hurry. We are such harried, busy, frantic people. God is not that way. I mean, these verses cover a span of over 500 years, 400 of which God's people are enslaved in a foreign land. And so, God promised Abraham the land, but Abraham died, and all he owned was a little cave in which his dead could be buried. He promised to multiply Abraham's descendants as the stars of the sky, but he died and only had one uh, son of the promise, Isaac. He prophesied to Joseph that he would rule over his father and his brothers, but he didn't tell them that the, that the route to that fulfillment included spending his 20s in an Egyptian prison dungeon basically so God is patient he is not in a hurry but he will accomplish his plans in his time he is, he is working he is, his timetable is not bound to our, our expectations our assumptions of the way and the timing in which God should work we, I know we all have we have our big plans, dreams um, expectations hopes we have our timetables but we, we will be, and, and we no doubt have been, disappointed by some of those. They're, they're not realized. They're not, or at least they're not realized when we plan for them to be realized. And, and, and this is what we take confidence in. God's, God's ways are not our ways. His timing is not always ours. And so as you think about school, as you think about career, as you think about relationships and health and parenting and on and on and on and, and future plans just just understand God God is not in a hurry and he will work in ways that you don't anticipate things that you think this is this is where I need to be and this is the, this is when I'm going to be there and nothing wrong with making plans that's, that's another sermon we can we could talk through that but but understand this has got to be the guiding the the ultimate conviction is we understand God's timetable is different and we trust him uh Another lesson 
You see, God forces our trials to work for our good and growth. He forces our trials to work for our good and growth. I mean, God tests Joseph, verse 19. Moses has to go through many trials in, in leading Israel out of Egypt through the wilderness. God brought Israel through many difficulties, but he did not abandon them. Um, Isaiah 43, 2, when you, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the, fi- and the flame shall not consume you. And so this is, this, we, we see this evidence, this tendency God has to, to use the hard things, to use the, 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 the bondage, to use the difficulties, to use the suffering, to use the persecution, to use these things for our good, for our growth. And I don't say that lightly. Listen, I really don't. I, I, I look around this room and I know that many of you have endured enormous difficulties and are, and, 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 and heavy burdens and trials in your lives. Um, this doesn't make them, just to say they're, they're not that big of a deal. No, we've endure, endured great difficulties as a church body. We've borne those burdens with one another. Listen, God does not waste sufferings. He doesn't waste them. He, he will be with us whatever we go through, and he will, he will use it for our good. Um, he gives us grace, not just the grace to remove us from the difficulties, but he gives us the grace of refinement through the difficulties. And he forces those things to be used for our ultimate good. He, he, he draws us near to himself in trust and dependence and confidence through those times of difficulty and works in ways that we don't always see in the moment and may not have eyes to see in this life, but he is at work, brothers and sisters. Yes, this is Romans 8, all that whole section. We, we know God is working all things together for the good of those who love God. That's not just a bumper sticker. That is, that is truth, brothers and sisters, and it's, and it's anchored in the fact that God remembers his people. He will, he will force all things to work for, his, for the good of his people. And last uh, lesson here in this, this bulk of the psalm is that God's strength is magnified in our weakness so that all glory goes to him. His strength is magnified in our weakness so that all glory goes to him. So as you, as you read through the summary of God's dealings with his people, as you, as you see this, your, your focus isn't, isn't like, wow, these are some great men. Great people. I, 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 I want to be just like them. No, the focus is, is upon God's ability to accomplish his, his purpose and his good pleasure through such weak instruments. It's, the, the, the greatness of God's power and his grace is what's magnified. It's not, the, it's not these superhuman abilities of these people. Not at all. God accomplishes that purpose in ways, and, and he does this in ways that often seem backwards they seem kind of upside down to us i mean he gave abraham and sarah the son of the promise by closing her womb until she's way past the years of bearing children he gave abraham's descendants the promised land by causing them to wander around for years and then enslaving them for 400 years he elevated joseph to second in the land by imprisoning him throughout his prime years He freed his people from bondage by turning the hearts of their captors to hate them. He he fed them in a barren desert with manna from heaven and quenched their thirst with water from a rock. 
<coughs> so this is, I think this is a connection. When we're weak, when we are without resources, what happens is all the glory goes to God when he meets our needs. He, 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 he loves that. At times we're brought low, at times we're humbled, at times we don't know what to do, at times we don't know how we can go on, at times when we feel our weakness like never before. In those times we, we can trust that the Lord, the Lord knows, the Lord cares, and he will give us grace for the moment, he'll give us strength for the day. And, and because of that, his, 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 he is glorified through it as we trust him. Okay, that's the, that's the first broad section. This will be much quicker. As most of the psalmist focuses upon our remembering, God's remembrance of us. Uh, but the second, the second movement in this psalm, and it's really kind of taking a reverse here. It's, most of this is in the first verses of the psalm. It's this, is your response, your response to God's sovereign grace should be to praise him, to obey him, and to make him known to others. That's very simple. But your response to God's sovereign grace should be to praise him, to obey him, and to make him known to others. And so just look what you see. This, we, we, we ought to be in light, in light of God's grace in our lives, in light of his power at work in us, in light of the fact that it's all he's doing. What do we do? We, we, we should resolve to praise him. Resolve to praise him no matter what we're going through, no matter what we're walking through. So just look at verse 1. You note those verbs. Give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Then skip to verse 2. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of all his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord in his strength. Seek his presence continually. Remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles and the judgments he uttered. And then the very last word of the psalm again is that hallelujah, praise the Lord. It's a worship. This is, this is, this is warfare for the believers. We, we fight through difficulties and challenges and changes and disappointments and hardships. We, we, with, we, we fight through those things in our life with growing uh, joy in the Lord. And not in, a, not in a trite way, but we sing to God. I mean, these verses are expressing these verbal acts of worship, giving thanks and calling upon his name and proclaiming and singing and telling. The redeemed should say so. We should, we should vocalize these things. They should, they, they should, we make known the glory of God in, in personal praise and corporate praise. This is part of why we gather as a body. And we're going we're gonna to hear in the, in the Sunday school hour, and just, and just a little bit, we have combined Sunday school for adult and youth classes. This is, this is not a, is there, I, I love the, the pairing of these, the psalm, and, and we're going to be in, in talking about lament. And those are not at odds with one another. Lament and praise and joy, those are not opposites. See, let me turn to 1 Peter chapter, chapter 1, if you would. 1 Peter chapter 1. Uh, elbow the person next to you if they've nodded off. First Peter one. There's been a lot of junk food consumed in the last couple weeks here, and blood sugar's getting a little low. First Peter one. You you see this rejoicing and grieving intermingled here in this passage, and this is this is the normal in, in for God's people. But first Peter, but it's only for God's people. We we're the only ones that, that lament. Well, I mean, I'll let Eric cover cover lament. Um, 
But he, he's saying, he, he, again, the, the first verses here, he's just blessing the Lord, again, thanking God for the salvation that is ours. It's all his doing. It's his, his grace. He's caused us to be born again. He, 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 he's done all of these things. He's kept us by his power. And then he says in verse 6, in this you rejoice. And if you remember when we were, and you were with us through First and Second Peter, these, these believers were going through incredible suffering. Having belongings taken away, persecuted for their faith, suffering, imprisoned, uh, fleeing for their lives. They're just suffering believers. And he says, yet in this you rejoice. You rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. And the word grieve there, it's not just you've, you've suffered, you've gone through difficulties. No, it's that you have, you have been in turmoil because of the things that you have suffered. He doesn't rebuke them for that. He says, you, 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 you are, you're grieving. Now, now through the various trials, and, and he goes on to say all these good things that God is, God is doing through them. And you, you don't see him now, but you believe in him, and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible, filled with glory. And so I, I just say that I think we can identify experientially. There, if you've been a believer for any length of time, you know that you can go through incredibly difficult suffering as a believer. And you can, you can lament. You can cry out to God. And you, 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 but even in that, you're crying to him. And you're worshiping him in that moment, in that desperation. And God can give, in the midst of that grief, a measure of joy. And those two things can be mingled together. Trials can be enormously painful. Tears can flow and yet we grieve not as those without hope. There's, there's confidence, there's hope, yes, joy and praise in the midst of, of sorrows. All right, you can sort the rest of that out, Eric. But I say praise the Lord, sing to the Lord. And, and again, the, the, we've talked about this before as a church. You're, you're familiar with this language, you've been here, but we're all worshipers. It's not like, you know, it's, pray, when I say praise, uh, how do I say it, praise, resolve to praise him no matter what you're going through. That's not like some uh, mental exercise. This isn't therapeutic, like, you know, I need, to, I need to praise, and that's going to help me get through this trial. That's not it. You are praising someone, something. You are, you are a worshiping being. That's how God made you. And when I'm saying praise the Lord, look to him, call upon his name, cry out to him, tell of him, sing to him. You are, you are, your, your, your attention, your, you're giving glory to something, to someone, you're looking to someone or something for trust and confidence. And I'm saying, direct it all to God in the midst, no matter what's going on in your life. That should, that should be the overflow of this psalm. Second, resolve to obey him no matter what it costs. I mean, the writer, the writer tells us at the end of the psalm, this is why, again, this is why all of this grace has abounded to you. It's that they might keep his statutes and observe his laws. Praise the Lord. And so, so this covenant relationship between God and his people, listen, it's established, it's maintained by God alone. It's, it's him. It's, it's the work of his grace alone. Salvation is of the Lord. But that gift of his grace, it, it causes us to respond with this glad obedience not merely like the, some formal observance of a few, a few rules or particular commands, but with all of our being. What Paul talks about in Romans 6, we're obedient from the heart. 
This is, this is what should happen in us, in us. And so this psalm, it's, it's focused almost entirely upon God's grace. And, 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 it's, and it's overlooking the sins of the people. That's what Psalm 106 is going to come back and fill in all that. And say, you know what? As all of this time that God was faithful, Israel, you were unfaithful. Psalm 105 is it's focused on the faithfulness of God. But the psalmist reminds us here at the end that, that, that God's grace is never an excuse for disobedience. Paul says the same thing in Romans 6. It should motivate us, in fact, trusting obedience and praise. Obedience is trust. You realize that? We're we're, we're saying, God, your ways are best. I trust you. It's all rooted in grace. And then last, resolve to make him known to others. Then to verse 1, he says, make known his deeds among the peoples. Israel is not to hide this revelation that God had entrusted to them, but he was to proclaim it. They were to proclaim it. We, 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 we not only constantly remind one another of God's gracious deeds, that's just part of what we do as we gather in the church. We're, we're pointing one another back. Remember, remember what Christ has done. Remember what God has done. Remember his grace. Remember all that he's accomplished. But we're also making his deeds known among the nations. Psalm 96, Psalm 76. Our worship should carry over into this global witnessing. And so when, when you and I are involved in the preaching of the gospel and the propagation of the good news of Jesus Christ, when you're sharing the gospel with a friend or a coworker, when you're supporting a missionary, praying for a missionary, uh, as we were exhorted to do last Sunday, when you're going to the mission field yourself, you are worshiping God. The act of missions is an act of worship. I'm just not talking about overseas. I'm saying even... And as we engage in God's mission, the act of sharing the gospel is an act of worship. Because when you're sharing the gospel with someone at work or in your neighborhood or at school, you're worshiping God by telling of his marvelous deeds. The emphasis is not on you and your story. The emphasis is on God and what he's done in Christ. Is there any greater deed that we could tell of than the deed of God sending his own son to die on our behalf and to rise again from the dead to save us. And so when you're telling that story, you're declaring his glory among the nations. You're worshiping God. And our lives, brothers and sisters, should be so gripped by that mandate, the mandate that Jesus gave us to make disciples among the nations, to, that God, God's sovereign grace to us, it should propel us to move out on mission with Christ. So, brothers and sisters, we're, we're to be a remembering people. This is what the psalm is calling us to remember, remember, remember. We're regularly checking our mirrors. We're looking behind us and seeing and reminding ourselves with thankfulness for God's grace, his sovereign grace in our lives and in history. We, we do this personally. We, you know, we, we, we look back over the year. We look back over our lives. There are those opportunities in our calendar like one we're in now to do that. But we also, we see our lives connected to this bigger story, God's bigger story. Looking back over all history, this history again in Psalm 105 is ours. And so we, we look back with thanksgiving, and we chiefly remember the crux of redemptive history, which is the death and resurrection of Christ, the cross. The chief demonstration, the salvation is of the Lord. And God did for us in Christ what we could never ever do for ourselves that's what we remember so we're to be a remembering people but aren't we so forgetful 
I mean, be honest. We don't remember as well as we should. Israel did not remember as well as they should. That's why there's a Psalm 106. We, we get busy, we get distracted, we forget to check our mirrors, and we're just like, just thinking about something else, and we're, we're going, going forward dangerously so. We don't actively remember and rehearse the rich, the rich truths of all that God has done for us in Christ. We get what some have called gospel amnesia. We, we become forgetful. Here's the great news. We forget to remember, but God never does. He never does. God remembers his people. He remembers his covenant. He remembers the cry of the afflicted, Psalm 9 tells us. He, he never forgets. His, his mind is a steel trap. <laughs> he never forgets his own. He, he never forgets to sympathize and to comfort those who are hurting his own. He, he, he remembers to provide for you. He remembers to comfort you. He remembers to convict you. He remembers to strengthen you. He remembers to give you joy. He remembers to, to support you. He remembers to lead you. He remembers to apply the grace of Christ to you. He remembers to guard you. He remembers to use you. He remembers to refresh you with his presence. He remembers to cheer you with reminders of his sweet promises. God remembers you. And this is the great hope. On the, on the last day, uh, we don't know when that day will be for us, but on the last day when you close your eyes in death, you will be awakened to find anew this great truth that God remembers you. He remembers you. And so it's, it's good, it's right, it's necessary. We're called to do this. We're called to remember God and to rehearse his, great, his dealings with us. And so we, we strive to never forget any of his benefits, Psalm 103 tells us. We, we, we want to resist gospel amnesia and work to remind ourselves and to remind one another of these great truths. And we'll never stop doing that by God's grace as a church. But as we do, we, we, we never overlook this fact. God, God remembers you. And he remembers you according to his love because of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we... We thank you that you, you are a God who's faithful, who's faithful to everything that he promised. Um, you, you have been faithful, you are faithful, and, and you will forever be faithful. And, and we have the, the greatest demonstration of that in Jesus Christ. I would thank you that as we're going to sing now, Lord, all of your promises, God, are yes and amen in Christ. What great great encouragement that gives to us uh, today, Lord. And I pray for those in this body that are walking through difficulties and those that are just the anticipation of a new year. I pray that you'd, you'd use your word, use this song, Psalm 105, to settle our hearts into, into a, a greater trust in, the, in, in your care for us and your remembrance of us as your people according to your love. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.